0: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
1: VDW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.
1: Welcome back to the Dog Track, Greyhounds. This is Richmond Till We Die, an episode by episode conversation about the Apple TV Plus show Ted Lasso, where we explore the characters, their relationships to each other, and how they're able to make us laugh until we can hardly breathe one moment and then feel with the deepest parts of our hearts the next. For this episode, our conversation is all about season two, episode 11, titled Midnight Train to Royston. It was written by Sasha Guerin, directed by MJ Delaney, and edited by Melissa McCoy. I'm Marissa, and I just bought a puppy for my puppy.
3: I'm Christian, and if you're ever looking for the perfect gift for me, an envelope stuffed full of cash will do it. I'm Brett, and one of my favorite colors is not black, but in
2: fact, dark heathered charcoal. Christian, I noticed you're not wearing dark heathered charcoal tonight. You're wearing a rather bright red number. Would you like to tell us about it? Today I
3: have on an Indonesian national team jersey. I know I had a former student back in the day who was from Indonesia. He played for a bit on their U23 team. And one summer when he went back home to play, I only half jokingly said, dude, bring me back some gear. And he brought me back this jersey, which is a fond memory. The not fond thing about why I'm wearing this is because in the last month, there was a tragedy in Indonesia at... A soccer match where some protests erupted. And then when the police came in to try to quell things, they used tear gas and kind of like forced people toward the exits, which according to FIFA, you're not supposed to do either of those two things for crowd control um, because it created a crush and a lot of people died. And this former student, he's now a football agent uh, in that part of the world. And so I was immediately. One, like hoping for his personal safety, that he was safe and he was. And then just thinking about how horrible it is when people go to these events, they're supposed to bring us joy and bring people together. And 125 people died last night and that is heartbreaking. And so our thoughts do go out to all of those families and people who care about humanity because tragedy feels inescapable these days and something that unfortunately all too many of us can relate to.
2: Tragedy in general is something that weighs on us constantly these days it seems like and that's one of the reasons we love our little escapes reprieves from what's happening in the real world things like Ted Lasso that allow us to escape reality for a moment but then when we return hopefully help us to live in reality a little bit better. So should we summarize what happened in this episode for the listeners?
1: That sounds like a great idea. The AFC Richmond Executive Suite is abuzz with exciting developments. Keeley has a photo shoot with Vanity Fair ee, that Roy's been asked to be a part of. The crew is planning a surprise going away party for Dr. Sharon. And Ghanaian billionaire Edwin Akufu is on his way to propose something...
2: It turns out, Okufu would like to sign Greyhound starlet Sam Obasanja to play for Raja Casablanca, which he will soon take ownership of. He rolls out seemingly every stop to impress Sam and is willing to pay whatever it takes to bring him to the Moroccan club.
3: Nate clearly needs some loving. He's on edge about not getting enough credit for AFC Richmond's success, and he's as obsessed with ascending to the highest levels of authority as any character on Game of Thrones. He also plants the most cringy of kisses on Keely, and there are no words.
1: Ted is very hurt by Dr. Sharon's plans to skip out with Nary a Last Dance, but he manages to tell her that and a number of other things in person. It turns out Ted and Sharon have a lot in common, and being bad at in-person goodbyes is one of them.
2: Speaking of goodbyes, are Roy and Keely gonna say goodbye to each other? It sure looks possible, Nate, Jamie, and Mrs. Bowen are all taking up space, rent-free in their heads, and it's really messing with them.
3: Nate keeps the cringe train rolling full speed with Ted right in its path. He tips off Trent Crim about Ted's panic attack, and Trent tips off Ted that a story about the panic attack will appear in the paper the next morning. With just one match left in the season, a whole lot of heavy hangs in the balance. And that's all the recap you're going to get. One of the
2: things that I really appreciate about this show and that many people have pointed out and noticed is the attention to detail and so many of its elements. One of the things that we haven't really talked a whole lot about but that has been on point for both of the seasons so far are the props and things that are just displayed whether it's in people's offices, around the locker room, wherever. And so I just want to take a moment to shout out props master craig cole and there was a specific thing that you noticed christian in this episode that made us realize we really need to give more love to the props department
3: everybody's favorite homeboy higgins has returned to the comfortable confines of his office he's not in a closet he's not in the weight room he's He's not he's
2: not in roving mode anymore he's
3: not in roving mode nope at one point i heard a rumor that he was propped up in the third stall of the AFC Richmond locker room and he doesn't have to stay there all day anymore. He gets his office back and directly behind him and above his head, there's a sign, a Southern league sign for AFC Richmond that has two arrows, like one points up and one points down. And the one that points down says something like three feet, six inches. And so that's a throwback. The Southern league is one of the oldest football leagues in England Um, it's been, it has semi-professional clubs. And so a lot of clubs that used to be in it, like Crystal Palace, like Fulham, like Arsenal have since broken away to more fully professional ranks. And what this particular sign is signifying is that there's a different rate for tickets, depending on if you're adult or you're a kid. And for a long time, the way that they would measure that was not always by years, but just how tall you were. And so if you were like under the line, then you got to pay the kid rate. And if you were above the line, I wish that rate. everyone
1: out there could see that Christian just looked over <laughs> at me as he said that and stuck his arm out just to say.
3: <laughs> Only because of the look of awe and incredulity in your face that I could see out of the corner of my eye.
1: You know, when I was younger, I was going to say little, but you know, when I was younger, my parents were the parents who would like take us to you know, amusement parks. We I grew up in Southern California, so Disneyland. Sorry, Disneyland. Don't hold it against me now. But I was like, I don't know, four and I think like three and under you got to like go free. So my parents were like, act like a baby and say you're like, if someone asks you, be like, I'm free. And so, yeah, so my parents like told me to act like a
3: 3-year-old all day. Well, they would have been hustling you into soccer games on the cheap then. <laughs> totally. <laughs> but shout out to Craig Cole because it's a cool small visual cue that does some really convincing mythology building around AFC Richmond to help us think and feel like it's a really old club. From you know the late 1800s, early 1900s, and not just something that was made up for a show.
1: Y'all, there's just something about Sam. Everybody wants a piece of Sam.
2: <laughs> is it his amazing smile, his dashing good looks? He's tall.
1: I mean, let's just be real. It's like just pick something, anything.
3: Okay, just like the whole package. Uh, yeah. Okay. For me, it's how cool he is. He seemed especially cool in this episode. For a while, he was really feeling himself brimming, full of confidence, making passes at older women. And having been now rejected, at least temporarily, by Rebecca, he seems to have accepted that with a peacefulness. And he's not beaten back or shy or reserved, but he's taken a deep breath and he's still enjoying and appreciating and processing life in a more quietly confident way.
1: Well, when you start your day practicing choreography, you know, that's <laughs> sync inspired, I think, you know, how else can you be but cool?
2: That's
3: my secret to life.
2: Yeah. And uh, getting in your Tesla after you score a hat trick probably isn't bad either, but yeah, I like what you point out, Christian, is the in, in other TV storylines, we could see a character like Sam after being rebuffed in this way, being really down and really like lingering on this one thing and kind of that situation defining the character. But right after the previous episode where Rebecca asked for some space and they kind of quote unquote go on a break the follow-up episode is very Sam-centric and it is not at all focused on his relationship with Rebecca. I shouldn't say not at all, but it's not the main focus.
3: It's in the background. Right.
1: I mean, it just goes to show that he is very self-assured and that what he told Rebecca is true, that he's only just going to get better with time. So, <laughs> I mean, he he needs to sort of, like, believe that in order to, like, have a chance of maybe winning her back if that's, you know the end goal. But I mean, Sam's just cool. And then we see him not just being wanted by Rebecca or, you know, the fans of Richmond, but then someone else stepping in to try and win his favor. Don't love that.
3: Yes. Akufu is mysterious at first because we don't know who he is or who he's going to be. <laughs> then we find out it's Sam Richardson, which is hilarious. He worked yes. with Jason Sudeikis before in a show called Detroiters, which only lasted two seasons, but which Jason Sudeikis still speaks longingly about and wishes could have gone on longer. Some of us are also familiar with Sam Richardson from his starring role in the Apple TV Plus show After Party. And he not only encompasses the character well, but one thing that he and Tahib and the writers do really well is present the complicated rivalry Between Nigeria and Ghana.
1: But yeah, it's in a playful way that still somehow makes, you know, white people the losers.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Which is important to point out because that is how it can be in real life sometimes. You have these two countries, and the people of those countries are rivals on the football pitch, and there are very real reasons for them to be rivals in real life. Uh, Economic reasons and land reasons and political reasons, all that stuff. But as is the case with a lot of us, there may be groups that we are rivals with, but that we may then need to form alliances with in other circumstances for our mutual betterment or mutual survival. And so there's the playful joshing that goes on back and forth around Jolliffe and around art and various aspects of life. But at the same time those two guys are still connected and feel connected because in many ways they're I don't know like the same kind of outsider I guess in this western environment.
2: Right, it's like they're finding there's there's common ground there even though that rivalry is so strong being in that being in a different context you can also find a bit of camaraderie or connection.
3: My favorite way this plays out is with the handshaking and how a Khufu won't shake hands with anybody until he gets to Sam. Then he'll shake hands with Sam. And it reminded me of a Key and Peel sketch where a representation of President Obama is going through a handshake line. Yes. And all of the people of color get like dapped up and, and hugged and these exuberant greetings. And then all the white people get like the very formal handshake, which is something that people of color, like we know as code switching, where there is a way of interacting with our in groups that then is different from how we interact in other situations, professional situations where the norm is dictated by white Western standards. And so it was a a funny remembrance for me (laughs) to see a version of that skit play out in this show.
2: Yes, I'm familiar with that. That's a pretty famous Key and peel sketch. I think one of the better known. And it's been memed to oblivion yeah, as yeah. well, which is like how I first came across it and then I had to watch the original, but yes, I think it's funny that that reminded you of it. And I also think it's just an interesting when a Khufu does arrive and there's this kind of awkwardness between him and Ted. I wouldn't say it's, you know, anything malicious at all, but there's definitely a bit of like awkwardness in the viewer for the viewer as you're watching that. And it's funny to see, we've talked about this in other circumstances, like when Dr. Sharon arrived, but it's interesting to see Ted kind of like thrown off center and not in control of a situation and not really controlling the awkwardness in his preferred Ted way. You know, he's kind of been knocked off balance a little bit by Akufu's arrival.
1: I was just actually going to say almost like the opposite, that I feel like this episode feels like the first time we really get like, The Ted Lasso from season one, Ted Lasso, where he's just Mm. trying to make everything feel right around him and everyone kind of feel good and trying to figure out things for people and trying to enjoy whatever situation he's in. I don't know. It just it felt like season one, Ted had been dropped in like the very end of season two. And it was like, hey, I remember this guy.
2: (laughs) Right. Well, it feels like a very different Ted than we were getting in episode 10, right? (laughs) If it feels like he has done a little bit of like recentering and healing
3: perhaps. Uh,
2: So I I take that point as well. I think you're right.
3: I'd like to play a game real quick. I love games. The game is called, are the subtitles in this episode wrong? Oh my gosh, I know exactly what (laughs) line you're talking about. Because you were kind of confused by what I said and I was confused by what you were assuming.
2: Yes, so going back to when... Ted and Akufu are first interacting. Well, actually not not when they're first. first Going back to when they're in Rebecca's office and Akufu has made his proposal or he's about to. Ted says
3: the Scottish have been very quiet about their cloning.
2: And the captions in Akufu's response say, a sad white man is still a white man. But it doesn't I've always thought that line was weird because I was like, OK, it doesn't make sense. It's a funny line, but it doesn't <laughs> seem to follow from what Ted said. And so, yeah, the what you said a silent white man is still a white man
3: <laughs> makes a lot more sense. Yeah. And I had heard it that way with the captions off. And so when we were talking about the episode and I said that you were like. Oh, that makes more sense than what I read on the screen. Yes,
2: it does. And it also harkens back to episode eight of this season where Jamie's dad is saying something he's saying you you bottled it which is a very common British yep. phrase you bottled it but in his accent it sounds like you balled it yeah. and so that's how the captions portray that line too so yeah. there's this is the second instance of captions failing me which makes me very sad <laughs> but yes a silent white man is still Brett a white man. Brett can't
1: hear anything without the captions <laughs> on. I can't
2: hear anything <laughs> without the captions but yes a silent white man is still a white man
3: good, good wisdom from a khufu there And a t-shirt we'll soon be selling. (laughs) We can have some fun with the awkwardness of Ted's relationship with Akufu and them kind of like feeling each other out and some of the awkwardness between Akufu and Sam as well. There are some other relationships in this episode that get awkward that don't feel nearly as fun. Yes, we enter into a weird, complicated,
2: not-so-love triangle when Keely offers to take Nate shopping he asks to go shopping and she takes him along and then in the midst of this shopping trip nate is overcome by some spirit and decides <laughs> to kiss keely in the middle of her sentence as she's talking to him
1: maybe it's the whiskey
2: maybe it was the whiskey
1: the price tags who knows but it was a, it was a bad choice and it was one that was not It was a bad choice.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it's the definite turning point for Nate. I feel like in this season where he is really not going to come back from this moment. He immediately after that happens, the kiss, we see him, you know, retreat to the mirror, look at himself and do the very disturbing spit on his own reflection move, which we talked about way back in our discussion of episode five, I think. And yeah, it's it's a, like you said, Marissa, it's an odd choice and it is, I think it's speaking to something deeper that's been beneath the surface for Nate this whole season, but has finally kind of risen to action. You know, he's acting on these feelings.
1: Clearly he misreads so many things about this interaction with he and Keely because They've been friends and they've had moments before and, you know, cute and sweet moments. And she's always encouraged him and always tried to, like, build him up, you know. But I think as they're they're talking and they, they have some common ground with kind of being these underdogs a little bit, you know. And he talks to her about, like, wanting to be a boss or be the boss, you know. There's a divergence from there where it's like. Yeah. Keely responds in a way that's like, yeah, I do. But only because like I've been mentored in a way that like I appreciate all the things about my friend who is my boss. And it makes me want to be one like her or because of what I've learned. You know, this is why I would like to. Um, And obviously Nate's is some other motivation that's not like keely's but he misreads it in a way that's like we're on the same team here we're on the same vibe it's like i'm feeling myself in this suit and you know her last line is something about like going for it and it's like oh no that's that was not the going for it she meant and but then can we just talk about keely for another moment because i'm just going to because you know she is my girl she's incredibly gracious in the most like awkward moment that can happen to someone, especially in a a relationship. It's like she immediately as, as uncomfortable and as like weirded out as she is, she tries her best to not make him feel bad or guilty or silly or embarrassed or, you know, clearly it didn't work, but she tries her best to like move past it quickly.
3: I don't know how I feel about that because you're right she does come across as gracious. I also had this feeling, though, in all of these broader societal conversations that we've been having about sexual assault, Like, how often does something like that happen? And then the woman or the person who holds lesser power in that social situation just kind of brushes it under the carpet so that it's not a big deal, so that the boat isn't rocked sometimes as a matter of like self-protection or self-preservation because they feel as though they're in danger on some level. And I don't know. I, it just, it's been sitting with me in a very uncomfortable way for her. And then especially as it continued to bother her for ways that I don't think she could really put her finger on but felt like she had to talk to Roy about it and put it out there, like these men continue to be unboundaried and invade her space, which is really what Jamie did too. Like that wasn't a cool time to profess his feelings for her. And it's at the very least, you know, it's putting a lot of weight on her and affecting this relationship that she has that she really wants to be functional.
2: Yeah, I will admit I hadn't really thought about it like that. I saw to kind of their friendship relationship and her, you know, kind of being gracious and just being like, he made a mistake. I'm not going to let it be a thing, but yeah, I, I absolutely could see Mm -hmm. her being upset, violated, obviously even afraid a little bit. And now that you say that it's almost emerging to me in a context of like in the movie where the villain like takes the, the good guy's like girl or takes the girl and like you know kind of like whisks her away and then there's like a weird romantic attachment to like now i'm gonna make you like my girlfriend or whatever it's it's a little bit like that because nate is literally he's gone from trying on this suit that is the richmond colors it's red and blue and yellow Right. And the crotch is loose, the crotch is tight. There's a great (laughs) crotch crotch. sequence, the crotch, uh, which is hilarious in that moment uh, right before we get very tense. But then he changes into like all black or all dark Heather charcoal, which is Roy's signature look. So he's literally dressed as Roy and trying to supplant Roy's place in this relationship. And it is a very. You know, kind of Bond villainy move or something. It's it's very well. It's just troubling. like actually
1: melodramatic. Like that's yes. how like Nate is playing out with his like graying hair becoming a villain, and it is like yes, very melodramatic. And yeah, I I agree with Brett. I didn't really kind of read the situation that way, Christian. But when you brought that out, I mean, it's it's something that I think you know. I felt in different situations or like lots of women can understand that. And even as I was like talking about that, I was like, yeah, I think like in those places we're women are meant to feel like, like it's okay. You know, like you're, you're, you're making them feel comfortable or you don't want them to feel bad or whatever. But yeah, he knows that she's in a very serious relationship and shouldn't cross that boundary. And he does.
2: Cause it's different than other times when this happens on TV, where there's like a mutual spark between these two people who are, you know, like even if someone's in a relationship and it's like, Oh, but I like this guy too, or I like this girl too, or whatever there, there hasn't been any of that foreshadowing or forecasting between Nate and Keely. So I think, yeah, maybe, maybe the way you're reading it and the way it's playing to you, Christian, the way it's sitting with you is a more accurate representation of what we're meant to feel.
3: Nate's transformation is interesting to me because as he is becoming like Roy, he's also diverging from Roy yeah. in a number of ways. Roy wears all black and he's grumpy and he cusses a lot, but we've talked about how he's always also a very principled person. And that's something that can be respected because he does have an ethical construct. Sometimes it's too rigid and too tight. And he has to learn how to give that some flex a little bit so that he can actually be in relationship with people. But he kind of reminds me of Batman has his demons that he's fighting, but figures out a way to generally fight for good. On the other hand, we have Nate and he feels much more Anakin to me. The, the spiral is happening here and the darkness is overtaking him. And as you watch the progression, it just becomes more and more and more, uncomfortable because the darkness feels inescapable
2: yeah whereas batman you feel like most of the time he's kind of in control of that darkness that's in his environment or at the
3: very least wanting to have the internal battle so that the darkness doesn't pull pull him in fully
2: let's just hope nate doesn't find himself alone in a room full of padawans
3: (laughs) not only is nate going to have to not become like Anakin, if that's if we're going to have a redemption arc for him, he's also going to need to not become like a football manager in real life. A man by the name of Jose Mourinho. I've heard of him. (laughs) There have been some connections to him already with the parking of the bus strategy that Nate engineers for the team in an earlier episode. That is something that has existed in soccer, but that Jose Mourinho made famous. Jose also has been graying over the course of his career is known for wearing dark clothing and and dark suits and has also just been in this spiral. Nate is the wonder kid. Jose Mourinho, when he was a young manager, was known as the special one because he achieved things like Champions League victory with FC Porto. That's not considered a power player on the international stage, like some of these other very wealthy clubs. And then he goes to Chelsea and You can see over the years that as he has become more powerful and more influential and more praised, his ego has just gotten completely out of hand. He's become an unmanageable person. He bounces around from club to club, has anger issues. His view of himself is completely out of whack and he's just not a person that can be worked with well. And this is a connection that During the season, people started to see and after the season was confirmed that, yeah, Nate's stylings and his countenance and his behavior are supposed to help us think of Jose Mourinho, the mad scientist who continues to get more and more mad. Sounds like a Batman villain. Picking up
2: on those threads that y'all are already starting to pull together with Keely and Roy's relationship and how what happened with Nate might affect that. Keely and Roy are really like left in a state at the end of this episode. It's by far the most rocky and imbalanced their relationship has felt because even in an earlier episode where they had a little bit of a falling out, but came back together in a very sweet way. We end on a very kind of classic end of the season cliffhanger here with the two of them.
1: Yeah. I straight up hate it. Uh, (laughs)
2: Like
1: I, I, like so many of our friends and listeners in the Ted Lasso world who care so much about like Rebecca and, and Ted, I like absolutely only care about Keely and Roy. (laughs) And like, if anything happens to them, I might like actually lose it. So yeah, it's hard for me in those moments, but it's just such beautiful acting because there's so many things that happen since Roy comes home from his three hour conversation with Phoebe's teacher. Um, which is cute and, you know, somewhat of like innocent banter slash, you know, very PG flirting. But he comes home from that and he's there and he's supporting Keely and he's telling her how amazing she is. And they have that moment. You're like, yes, you know, they are meant to be together forever and ever and yeah. And you think it's all like just going to like just going to resolve right there. Ooh. And then everything dissolves during those photographs on the couch and it's just so amazing to me how they can shoot that and so many things can happen while a photographer is switching a lens and like isn't that like what life is about like you switch lenses you get a new view or perspective on something and everything has changed right
3: the biggest thing that's changed for these two is they're in a loving functional substantive relationship It seems like that really hasn't been the case up to this point in their lives. And so there's probably a lot bubbling under the surface in terms of fear and wondering how long is this going to last and not knowing how to deal with conflict because they haven't walked through that before. Like they haven't practiced it before with anybody else. And even it's been a topic of conversation that, They both had a lot of lovers in their past and probably sometimes like more than one at a time. And so when these situations come up with Nate or Jamie or Miss Bowen or whatever, there's probably a familiarity there that's scary because before that has led to the end of relationships. Even if it would be way farther down, this would be the first step into that journey. Yeah, they're both kind of,
2: coming to grips with what they want long-term, both with this relationship and in their careers and their futures. We've talked a little bit about this with regard to Roy already this season because we sort of had a Roy-centric episode where he went from being, I don't know what I'm doing, to punditing to, that's not a word, but it is now, to coaching. And now we're sort of seeing the beginning of that play out with Keely where she got this position with Rebecca back in season one, and now she's kind of, looking ahead maybe moving on to something something bigger something better something new and they're both trying to find out who they are as individuals but in this relationship at the same time and like y'all mentioned it's just tough with all of these other people on the periphery starting to crowd in on their space as they're navigating these times of change and to me one thing that solidified the way that i felt about this reveal this plot line at the end of this episode was At the end of Roy's conversation with Miss Bowen, when she does ask, she makes a joke about having to fend off the single dads (laughs) and the not-so-single dads on the parent-teacher conference night, which is funny. But then she asks, Roy, are you married? And he just says, no. But there's a look after he says that where he's like considering, to me, it appears that he's considering, do I want to be married? And is Keely the person that I'm going to marry? And I don't think there's a fear there, but there's just kind of this it hits him for what might be the first time of like, Oh, is this like where we're heading and what the, what the hell do I do? If it is
1: No, it feels more like to me, like, no, but do I tell her that I'm in a very serious relationship (laughs) with someone that I love? Yeah. But he does not.
2: He doesn't, but I don't, you know, I think that, I think that just goes back to what Christian was saying though, is they've probably both Keely and Roy have been in these situations and they've, they've gamed out situations like this before in ways that have led to relationships ending or destructive behavior and they avoid it for now. But I think the specter of that is still there for both of them as they're kind of talking through what's happened with these, these folks who are kind of there on their relationship, the edges of their relationship.
1: I wish someone would like look up all the different like compliments or like adjectives or things that, roy uses to describe keely because i always think it's cool that like he doesn't always say like you're beautiful or like gorgeous like when he comes in he's like you look fucking cool (laughs) like you know it's like i don't know to me i think that's like such a fun way to like tell someone you look really good you know it's like it's never it seems like it's never the same sort of like description like he's always thinking of like how she wants to be like praised in that moment
3: One other relationship to delve into Ted and Dr. Sharon it's probably too bad that she's taking off because Roy and Keeley they could use (laughs) someone to listen to them.
2: Yeah and it's not great that she is taking off early because this clearly sends Ted into a tailspin. He's made lots of plans for her going away party and then he abruptly finds out from Higgins that oh she's already got a train she's leaving like later today and Ted is not having it. He is going to go once again, invade her space and go way outside of her building until she arrives so that he can talk with her.
3: She's very smart. She probably should have anticipated how hard it would be for Ted to not say goodbye. And I do get it because in highly emotional situations, I'm a bad talker and Being able to think things out, write them out, that has been something that has helped me to tap into more emotionally in tuned areas of my life. But with everybody else, kind of whatever, but especially with Ted, it may have been good to have the letter and to say, man, Ted, I'm taking off. Goodbyes are hard for me, but I want you to have this and I appreciate you or something to that effect instead of going full silence on him.
1: That would be less interesting TV though.
3: It would be. Yeah. <laughs> no,
1: I mean, I, I think you're right, but I think too, like it also just paints a better picture for us to see like how similar they are Yeah. in, in certain ways. And also that like Dr. Sharon is not perfect and she's flawed and she has her own struggles. And I think like, again one of the things we celebrate about this tv show is like the way that they deal with mental health and i think a lot of people think that like therapists have it all together they're these perfect people that can fix any situation it's like nope she's a very real person like with her own things and her own demons and um you know she was she shared with Ted, like, you helped me become a better therapist. And there are things that she learned along the way, too. So, again, I think, like, showing that she's just a human with, like, her own emotional issues, too. Like, I don't know. It makes me feel better to know that someone like that who's brilliant is still messed up.
2: She's not above avoiding a awkward or <laughs> potentially emotionally painful goodbye because she just doesn't want to have to like go through that she knows that she's she and ted are both going to be emotional and so yeah she she opted for trying to do the take the easy out which sometimes is you just you try to do for your own kind of self-care and self-preservation
1: what's that called an irish goodbye yeah
2: she did an irish goodbye (laughs) uh at least she wrote a letter though i mean
1: One of the things I love about Dr. Sharon's character and the way Sarah Niles acts throughout the season is that it's such a slow burn. Like If you think back to when we first met her, she seemed like she didn't want any of the nonsense, the playing around, the messing around, the the playful banter, the the actual playing of games, right? We meet her and it's like, ooh. And then the way we end things, she's literally playing games with Ted. And I just Mm. think that's really special.
2: Yeah, as we were watching this episode, we've spent so much time in this season now, having watched it, rewatched it a few times. Waiting for season 3. Waiting for season 3, <laughs> I found myself when Sharon entered in this episode, I was like, "Man, I love her character now." Like I I've spent so much time with with all of these characters and like I just I from going from the very first impression that we get of this character and how we're sort of ma- manipulated to feel as viewers to now I just, like you said, I love this character. I love the performance that Sarah Niles gives. I think I saw, um, I was reading like a recap of this episode from NPR from when it first aired and someone called the performance a patient performance. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, like that, uh, in in all the meanings of that word, Sarah Niles has given a very patient and deliberate performance with this character. And we just want to recognize that.
3: Speaking of good performances, There are amazing performances in the silence or the mostly silence of Ted reading the letter in Dr. Sharon's presence. Yeah, I love that scene and
2: the way that it is acted and directed and all the beats they have to hit without saying any words, like where he starts reading and she kind of knows where he's going because she wrote the letter. And then, you know, she's sort of silently very subtly reacting to things that she knows that he's reading then there's a big moment where he stops and looks up at her and she looks down and she knows exactly what he just read we don't which is very frustrating i would love to see the letter but it doesn't take away from the fact that it's just brilliant acting to to get those beats right and to get and directing too and to make us feel you know misty in that moment is it's just really powerful and it harkens back to the very first episode of the series where we have the one-sided phone conversation between Mm -hmm. Ted and Michelle where we're only hearing Ted's side and we're we're filling in the blanks. And so we have even less context here, but still I think it's a really effective way to portray this moment between the two of them and this moment of understanding and how far the characters have come and how far their relationship has come this season.
3: We do get a brief comedic release, which I really appreciated when Ted... (laughs) <laughs> Quite sassily says that she spelled favorite wrong.
2: Yes, she spells favorite wrong, and then later, as they're playing games, like you said, Marissa, Ted leaves her, steals her move, and leaves her by uh, giving her one of his favorite gifts to give, which is the army man in her beer, which is disgusting but cute. And I don't know, I just really like the the symmetry of end of season one. We have him his relationship with Jamie. And like the progress that was made there and here at the end of season two, we have another kind of positive relationship growth moment where it's sort of punctuated with this, this army man toy that's been a recurring theme in the show. And of course, the Wizard of Oz pinball machine and all the things that go with that. Like you said, Marissa, like you mentioned, just they're they're more similar than they first realized. And it's it's neat that we kind of end with them making that connection and sharing these these moments.
1: Well, I mean, everyone's favorite relationship that we haven't covered yet is Rebecca and Ted. And we get this beautiful, like, callback to her storming into his office to have some big confession. And clearly it's not as, like, shocking for their relationship this season. But he does say, Can't wait to see what you have for me next year.
3: Dun dun dun.
1: What the fart does that mean? <laughs>
3: I have to find out next year. She's gonna fire him. <laughs> Maybe she. Oh, mercy firing. Step into the world of power,
0: loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now you wanna get mixed up in the family business? Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
1: VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. As Sharon and Ted say, bye, bye, bye. We ah. didn't, haha, <laughs> <laughs> you see what I did there? <laughs> Bazing. <laughs> we didn't get like a full choreographed, like, you know, in costume, saying goodbye number that I was hoping we might get. But we did get the snippet of the guys dancing early on. Tell us about some of the music in this episode, Brett.
2: Yeah, well, I think that's definitely the most fun and popular, like, famous reference in this episode, I would say. They're doing the very well-known and famous choreography of Darren Henson, who I remembered. Like the workout slash dance videos, Darren's dance grooves. Oh, I don't that know. Dude. That is. It is him. Right. He choreographed the bye-bye bye dance. And I like I think I knew that way back in the day, but I had totally forgotten. So that was a nice little nugget to, a good to nugget. bring back Darren's dance grooves. And yeah, I think that it's um it's definitely a it would have been fun to see them do this at the gala, but we did get a little bit of insider Information as we've interviewed some of the cast and learning this choreography for this one, you know, two minute scene was a whole thing.
3: Yeah, I don't think they probably had the time or the energy to learn the whole entire dance because <laughs> they practiced, they had rehearsals. There, in some ways, it looks very improv y and there probably were parts that were, but they legit worked on having that dance down and they did a great
2: job. Right, they had a choreographer come work with them in a dance studio to mm-hmm. to get the moves right. So again, just like the commitment to getting things right on this show is something to commend.
3: I don't know if these two particular moves were practiced, but I do want to shout out Charlie Hiscock Will for the way that he gets that speaker over his head, but does the, like, hips yes. don't lie. Yes. That's amazing and sultry. And then our good friend, Tom Hedrick, when he rips his, his shirt, shirt off, off, goes Petey Pablo, spins it around his head like a helicopter, <laughs> and then starts moshing with all the homies. I, I like that. It showed it showed good energy from Tom. I thought... No, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, like, their reaction to, like, getting it right, you know, is, like, <laughs> like, I feel like it's like the uh, the biggest celebration we've had from this team like ever on the show.
2: <laughs> it's either this or winning their quarterfinal match against uh, Tottenham, but this may edge it out a little bit, honestly. <laughs> both, they are it's
3: pure joy, both great accomplishments, very great accomplishments In sync is great. Uh, maybe not the most musically technical and ambitious score that we get in this episode, what other music do we hear that might have a bit more depth, Brett? No offense, JT. Yeah, there were a couple of that stood
2: out that we can talk about real quick. One is called Cold slash mess or cold mess. I'm not sure how mm. you should. Apt descriptor for a handful of moments in this episode. <laughs> exactly. By an artist named Prateek Kuhad. And this song is playing as Roy and Keeley are sort of making their competing confessions to one another. And the vibe is getting real bummery in the room. Mm-hmm. And the chorus, which happens several times in the song, as choruses often do, says... I wish I could leave you, my love, but my heart is a mess. My days, they begin with your name, and nights end with your breath. And I think there's a way of reading that that's like, I wish I could leave you, but I think it's more like, I wish I could give you my love. I wish I could leave you with my love, Mm. but my heart is a mess. And so the song is about wishing that you had this capacity to love someone the way that you want to and just not being able to. And I think that's a really great placement for what's happening between Roy and Keeley. And then again, kind of on the meta level, I thought there was a really interesting song. Again, that's happening more in the background, but it's called Abele by E.T. Mensa, who is a Ghanaian musician who is known as the king of High Life music, High Life being a genre of West African music that is West African traditional music meets Western jazz. And so this is the music that's playing in the fake Ghanaian (laughs) slash Nigerian cafe that he has created with his friends. And the reason that I thought this was an interesting choice was because this music has its roots in Ghanaian culture, but it eventually sort of became more well-known as a type of Igbo Nigerian music. So there's... It's still very prevalent in both countries from what I understand. But it, again, it's one of these kind of cross-cultural, like who does high-life music better <laughs> type of thing. So even within this nice musical moment that's just meant to be background music, we're feeling those tensions and that subtlety, that subtle kind of relationship between these two countries is there. So it's just, it's really, I thought it was a really interesting placement. And again, just great job by the music team as always. There's also a very... Popular song from Radiohead, but you can go read tons of articles about OK Computer if you want to know how cool that song and that album are. So (laughs) I'll just I'll let you all do your Googles on that one. There were a lot of pop culture references too in this episode. They come fast and furious, and I don't think any of them take up a lot of space, really, like they kind of come and go. But what were, did y'all have some favorite like pop culture moments in this episode?
1: I like when Ted references Sam and Rebecca from Cheers being one of his favorite TV couples. And now we have one in real life. So that was kind of cute. Plus we already have like the, the Cheers connection through Jason already.
3: I was surprised that we got the midnight train to Royston without getting any Midnight Train to Georgia music or really even any Gladys Knight music. I was waiting for that to appear to tidy all of that up, but not this time, which is okay. I still love the title of the episode. The other one that I'm partial to was when they're in the museum and Sam says he thought he recognized one of the actors from I May Destroy You, which is a show that Sarah Niles was in. That's a fun little shout out to some of her previous work.
1: What about random, like disheveled Banksy? (laughs) Yeah,
2: we found out who Banksy is, y'all. It's amazing. Jackpot. What What if that's really Banksy, though? I (laughs) I was like,
1: actually, like, wait a second. Wouldn't that be the most
2: Banksy thing to show up and not be credited as Banksy? Super meta. meta. (laughs) Who knows? That would be really funny. I also liked it, since we're in the museum already, I did think that the art that Sam and Akufu are admiring was, again, a really nice use of props, a really nice use of sort of meta commentary in the episode. Because that piece, we get a pretty decent look at it in the episode. It's called Carry You Home, and it's by a young Nigerian artist named Kalechi Nwanyeri. And he has described the work as his most important. And that he loved the way it was used in Ted Lasso and that the painting is supposed to represent the end of sad times and the beginning of better ones. And it's a person depicted carrying another person. And it's supposed to be a metaphor for kind of carrying yourself through hard times or like carrying like carrying yourself back home, carry you home. And so it kind of speaks to that inner strength, but also that longing for for home. And so I think that's why it really is speaking to Sam in this moment and what's happening, bet- you know, kind of how... Akufu is, for lack of a better word, kind of manipulating his emotions and kind of playing at what Sam might be feeling to to get what he wants ultimately, which is for Sam to sign for his team. So again, I thought that was a nice pop culture slash art reference that that speaks directly into what's happening in the narrative.
3: It's not really pop culture. It's more Ted Lasso inception situation. But when Roy is preparing for the photo shoot and they say that, Nikki wants to take a look at or do some work on his eyebrows. It's funny because Nikki Austin heads up the hair and makeup department for the show in real life. Yeah, So (laughs) I'm sure she was really glad to get a little shout as it relates to Brett Goldstein's body hair. I caught that
2: reference and it made me smile. (laughs) So I'm glad they worked that in there. We have talked about a few soccer themes in this episode already. Is there anything else that's that we've like glaringly passed over that needs to be addressed in this episode, Christian.
3: I loved that. One of the first things we hear is the crowd singing Sam Obasanya, but they're singing it to man, maybe one of the most familiar tunes in all the world, yeah, which is the tune to seven nation army by the white stripes. It's easy to see how that song became so popular. People don't sing the melody to this song. Like, There is a melody and there are words, but soccer fans all over the world sing the bass riff. Yes. Essentially. So it's nice because while they sing Sam Obasanja in this instance, 90% of the time people are just saying, oh, and so you don't have to memorize anything. You just have to know this very familiar tune that you hear on TV or in every soccer stadium in the world. And it was a pleasing refrain to my ears.
2: Yep, we heard it at the U.S. women's match when we were there a few months ago. So I, of course, liked that musical moment, but I was also wondering a little bit, what's going on with Sam's employment? How do players move around in the soccer world? And is it different than how American sports fans might think about trades?
3: Yeah, we're used to trades and free agency. Those are primarily the two mechanisms, and I guess drafting. Those are the mechanisms by which people get Put on teams or choose to go to teams. And soccer is different. Teams have your rights. And then usually what happens is your rights get bought and sold. If you have like one year left on your contract, then it can be pretty possible for you to force your way out with the team that you want to go to paying a lower fee than if in Sam's situation you're under contract for three more years, because since you're under contract and ostensibly at a lower price, because Sam is a younger player and now he's blowing up, he would have signed that contract before he was this good. It would take a lot of money to get him away from AFC Richmond. And it's money that seems to be willing to be paid, but yeah, it'd be, it'd be tough to prime away. Like a Khufu says
2: for such a, Ridiculous amount of money that people will think Rebecca has taken advantage of him.
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah. In a non sexual way, of course. I was glad to see Sam have such pause about this and even at times struggle to really wrap his mind around it because it would be a huge ask to go to a league in Morocco when you're used to playing in one of the biggest leagues in the world, that's not a jump that would be made by a man in his early 20s.
1: Y'all, there were so many things that happened in this episode that, again, made us feel and think and also laugh. So do you have any quotes that may, you know, correspond with one of those emotions?
2: Yeah, I've tried to work in a couple already just because I thought Yeah, there were you're several kind of cheating. <laughs> <laughs> that I didn't want to let go, but I think one of my favorites is actually a callback to season 1 <laughs> when Ted finds out that Dr. Sharon is going to Skip Town early and Higgins is very cool about it, which I also find kind of funny. <laughs> like he's just happy to have his office back. He's like, "Good riddance. I have my chair and I'm not sitting. I'm not officing in the closet anymore." But Ted leaves the room after Higgins has told him that Dr. Sharon has written everyone a really nice letter. And as Ted storms out, Higgins reaches out and says, don't let her get away with it, Ted. (laughs) And there's a beat. And then Ted slams the door back open and says, yes, just like he does in season one, which I appreciated the callback there. What about you, Christian?
3: First, I would like to point out a line that hits different when you hear it on rewatch than the first time. But it's when Nate is sitting in Keely's office and she says, kill two birds with one stone. And he says, yeah, let's go murder some birds with a rock. Like the first time it's like, oh, that's funny. And then when you watch it after you see where Nate kind of ends up at the end, it's like, oh, he (laughs) he might actually do it. So the quote that I like and still laugh at is from Ted. Trickle-down economics may stink, but trickle-down support smells like pizza, roses, and I would assume Viola Davis. He has a lot of
2: like people associated smells (laughs) like, and (laughs) that he is just cataloged. I wonder
1: how many of those are like real like things that like you know a listers talk about like you know like everyone's always like oh Viola Davis always smells good or you know so and so has great breath or whatever. It reminds me
2: of one of my very first favorite podcasts ever, where the hosts would often speculate about what Barack Obama smelled like and Mm -hmm. how good he smelled, and they finally had him on once they got their dream and so of course awkwardness ensued.
3: Please keep an eye on our Twitter feed for our upcoming thread outlining what we think each character in Ted Lasso smells like.
1: <laughs> um this just like got me especially on this rewatch because I just finished directing a musical with lots of men and so um I I really like Ted's line about, you know how hard it is to get grown men to learn choreography? <laughs> and so that felt very real to me. And like also someone who likes to give gifts or do kind of like grand gestures for people. Like, I feel like that's not super far away from my own personality where I would like make a group of people like learn <laughs> choreography to a number just for like something stupid like that.
2: I am nodding vigorously. <laughs>
1: So that line felt funny, but also, like, very real in my life. Like, I probably said it or will say it at some point. (laughs) Okay, that's our show. If you'd like to dive even deeper into the themes of this episode, you can find even more Ted Lasso content in our show notes. You'll find the link to our extensive notes in the episode description.
2: You can also keep the conversation going with us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle on both is at Ted Lasso Pod. It's a great way for us to connect with each other and for y'all to share your insights on the show. This episode of Richmond Till We Die is brought to you by Gin and Kerosene Productions. It was produced by me, Brett.
1: Me, Marissa.
2: And me, Christian. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to subscribe to Richmond Till We Die on whatever app you're using to listen to this
3: episode. If you have access to an Apple device, we'd love it if you'd head over to the Apple Podcasts app. And give us a quick five-star review. It'll help more people find and hear the show. I'm Christian, signing off for Marissa and Brett. Thanks for listening. Until next time, cheers, y'all.
2: Me, Marissa. You enjoy? Can I leave them? <laughs> yeah. I am leeching. <laughs> You enjoyed this conversation.
1: No, it's too
0: weird. I can't do it. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at choppacasino.com.